Welcome to the Digital Leaders Podcast. I hope you've listened to the interview with Guy Kawasaki that was published before, but today we are talking about something completely different. The person that I have on the podcast is an absolute beast. He was running multiple companies from Brown, the electronics company that's now part of Procter & Gamble, to Whirlpool Company, which is a company with 90,000 employees and 29 billion in revenue, to Logitech right now, which is pretty much known for mices and keyboards, and now rocking in video collaboration, gaming, um, they bought blue microphones and more. This person turned this company around um, pretty impressively, I would say. He came in eight years ago when the company was on a downturn and he made more losses in the first year. <laughs> That's always what he talks about. And then it started to get better and better. And for now, as we are like in the mid of 2019, it was a journey from, let's say, something around $6 per share up to $38, $39 per share. So it's crazy if you think about how share value is yeah, calculated, you know that he did a great job. I'm more than happy to welcome one of my like one of my friends right now. Like it was the first time that I really met him longer for the interview. A year and a half later, we're sitting on stage together more and more often. We meet each other uh, in different cities in the, in the world, especially in Europe. And Brecken Darrell, the CEO of Logitech, is now giving insights into his process, how he was managing Logitech and what he's focusing on. And I'm very thankful that he's joining and uh, giving me some time to interview him. And yeah, have a great time with Brecken. I really, really think he's a stunning person, a great leader, and you can learn a lot. Welcome back to another interview here on the podcast. And today I'm sitting in kind of Lausanne. It's a bit out outer space, I would say. I was a bit confused when I had to travel here. But I'm in the headquarters of uh, Logitech and I'm talking to Brecken Darrell, uh, the CEO of Logitech. And I met him at the next web in Amsterdam when I was visiting and he was giving a keynote about, yeah, de design everything, as transforming companies from product design to design everything i would i would sum it up like that but we will we will elaborate on that and i was like the approach to talk to a lot of startups and learn for it from them for the corporate and then the successes logitech had in the last years i was like i have to get the, this guy on the podcast and i'm happy that you take the time so thanks for attending and giving me the opportunity to interview you welcome to the podcast brecken well thank you i'm really uh, flattered to be asked And, uh, and I'm excited to be on your podcast. So I heard that it's the first podcast interview for European um, podcasters. <laughs> as far as we know, it might be the first podcast ever. Okay. In oh. Europe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good one. So you're a huge fan of transforming companies into design companies. And that's what you talked about at the next web. Could you elaborate on that approach a bit? Yeah, I... Um, You know, I, I spent, I was really so fortunate. I guess a lot of your listeners are in Germany. I was so fortunate at a really formative time in my career to be, uh, to get to go to run Braun. I was the president of Braun Brown uh, in, in Kronberg, 
outside of Frankfurt. And uh, those four years were magical for me. And they were magical mostly because I, uh, not only did I work with a lot of great people, but I also really fell in love with uh, design and design thinking. And and I I discovered during that period that uh, design is, is more than just, you know, beautiful things. It's a way of thinking about things and how to improve things. And, and so once I discovered design, Brown style, I started to look at design uh, more broadly. And the more I looked, the more applications I see. And I wouldn't pretend to be a design expert myself, but I, I just think there's so many applications for, for design and design thinking if you, that you can really apply to anything. So, so since then, including my time at Brown, I've, everywhere I've gone, I've kind of started with, you know, gosh, how could we use design to, to reinvent this or to improve this? And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I'm up to or what I, we've been up to really at, at, at Logitech. So how did it um, start? You came to Logitech, I think, six years ago, maybe? Yeah, that's right, a little six? over six okay. years ago, yeah. And uh, what was the first thing you had to do to transform Logitech or what was the state of Logitech at that point? Well, Logitech has a, has a great history. So it, it had always been a very innovative company. Um, not as well known as it, as it deserved to be for its innovation because it innovated in a fairly narrow set of spaces around the PC, you know, not just in a mouse and a keyboard, but also PC speakers and webcams and headsets. And, and so, uh, you know, that, that innovation did involve some really, really cool, great design. But the company really never had a, officially had a, a designer on staff. And uh, we certainly did have people who had a great design sensibility. And we have people here now who had that, um, including the, the former CEO, who's now the chairman, Greeno DeLuca, and Pierluigi Zappacosta, who was a, one of the founders. And, and I'd say a lot of people throughout the company had, had good design uh, feel. But we didn't really have technical designers here. And so when I came, uh, the company was in a bit of uh, trouble, I would say. We'd gone, you know, kind of three or four years of uh, the best description I could say is flat or declining and going sideways strategically. And they brought me in and I, because I do love design, I immediately started trying to build a design capability inside. And, um, and I can talk you through that if you'd like. Yeah, I would, I would love that because that's, what you actually did and that maybe some people can some of the listeners can get intentions and perspective on how to to walk through the process okay so so here's the cookbook if you're going to cook a company that's design centric the first thing you do is don't hire any designers get deeply into the products yourself because you can't if you're the leader you can't be the leader of a company without being deeply involved with the customers and the and the products whether they're virtual or physical so I spent really the first year in meetings, uh, every category twice a week, directly with the external firms we were working with and our internal teams, really trying to get in, uh, deeply into the products. And, and uh, toward the end of that first year, I did step two in the cookbook, which is I said, gosh, you know, I'm not a designer. I'm not a great designer, but, but I'm sure I can find one. And I did. And uh, I started uh, dating uh, my head of design, who is Alistair Curtis, who is the former head of design for Nokia. He and I worked together, and then we did step three, which is we defined some principles that we wanted to use for design. And uh, those principles were a little different from everybody else's, but they helped us get very specific on what we were looking for in, uh, in design of our products and experiences. And then step four was to build a design organization. 
And so that took a long time. It's been six years. Now we've really got one. Uh, we hired people from a company called IDO, which some of your listeners may know, Nike, which I'm sure you know, Microsoft, you know, lots of different places. We hired experienced designers of all levels uh, doing all kinds of design, not just industrial design, which you might expect from a, a predominantly hardware company, but also UI and UX and brand design and web design and every kind of package design. So now we've got a full-blown design organization spread out throughout the world, over 100 people. And, uh, and I would say that's kind of where we, that's the state of play right now. And I can add the next steps on the cookbook if you'd like. But in terms of really building a design, design capability, that's a pretty good start. Thanks for sharing. And um, regarding the successes from Logitech of the last six years, there was the first year when you came in and you talked about that on stage where you, I think the, I think the, the stock price decreased or you made a loss. I don't know how to define it. Um, properly because I wasn't yeah. sure about the numbers but how did you feel in the moment when you had to tell the board that you were making a loss um, after you've been in the company for one year well it's pretty easy to be um, to join a company when it's in trouble um, it's because you know when, it, when it's really in trouble normally you don't have too much if, if it's the deeper the trouble the easier it is so I recommend all your all your listeners to go join a really sick company Especially if you're going to get a chance to run it. I, I'm kind of kidding. But it, but it, when I joined, it was, uh, I mean, in retrospect, at least, it, was, it seems like it wasn't so bad because it, we were really at a low spot. And, I, and also, everybody in the company was ready for change. You know, they were really ready for change. And, uh, and so it was pretty easy to get people excited about the change and the changes we needed to make, including the board. And the, the board was in some ways... Um, Uh, just like the employee base, they were super ready to, to make some changes and for, for me to make changes. And I was in a hurry to get started. So we started changing things really from the first week when I came. I mean, the first week I changed the organization. And by the third or fourth week, we announced we were going to shrink the company. And, you know, we were off and just running, running, running. And, you know, and that was so fun. And I think that, you know, a board and an American board is not as directly involved in the day-to-day -day work as, a, as some of the boards in different parts of the world, including Germany. But, but our board was certainly aware of what I was up to, but, but I, you know, they were getting updates every you know, two or three months. And I think they, they, they were not, after that first year when we had that big loss, um, it was part of an overall game plan. And I, I don't think they were worried about that at all. They were more worried about, okay, where are you going? Okay, then which points did you lay out to explain the long-term effects of uh, what you were trying to do or what you were doing in the retrospect? Well, you know, I'm, I'm very careful not to, not to spend too much time on the very long term. You know, I think uh, early in my career, you know, I would get up and paint this beautiful, amazing vision for people that had uh, numbers next to it. You know, we're going to be a whatever billion-dollar company. And uh, I learned the hard way, I guess, that, you know, that's not a great idea, you know, because it does get people excited. But it also puts a measuring stick out there that if you don't hit it, everybody feels like they're missing something. And so I stopped doing that, and I didn't do that here. I had a long-term uh, vision for, for the company, and still do, uh, but it, it's not attached to numbers or anything. And, the, and we, we really focus on you know, trying to you know, create amazing products and experiences and, and just spend less time trying to talk about these glorious visions that we're trying to create. So is the vision to create... Um exceptional good products or is it a bit more defined because i would i wanted to ask you anyway so uh, why shouldn't i do it now okay well i'll i'll i'll, uh, I'll tell you what our 
whatever vision means, you know, which I always think is really interesting. In fact, I had my board used to say, you don't have any vision, you know, the first couple of years. And I think they discovered that I, I had enough of a vision to get to where we are anyway. Um, yeah, our vision, if you want to call it that, our goal is to be, we have a couple of things. First, you know, we want to be a multi-category, multi-brand company. You know, Logitech was always a single brand company. So Logitech. And, there, and we took Logitech into everything. And it worked really well when you surrounded the PC. And then, am I moving too much? Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, so it worked really well around the PC because everything was Logitech. You know, the problem is once you went beyond the PC, you had to say, well, now you're in a category, you might be competing with somebody. Like, let's say when we got in the music category, we're competing with Boza, uh, JBL, uh, Beats. You know, it's really hard for Logitech to compete with those brands at the same price with the same features and, and expect to do very well. So so we concluded pretty quickly we need to get into into also have another brand. So so the, the, the vision here is we're going to be multi-category and in some cases more and more brand, another brand, so multi-brand. So broadly speaking, think like a, a little bit like uh, Nestle or Procter & Gamble. You know, we're going to be a multi-category, multi-brand company, leveraging this this stuff that most people call computing, computer, you know, a computer, a, a computer itself, uh, storage, sensors, all those things, and so all those ingredients that go into things. So that's what we're basically going to do. And underneath it all, as we started a minute ago, we're going to be a design company. Not, I mean, unequivocal about that. We will be a design company. We won't be a fashion company, but we'll be a design company, which means we're going to create that company that I described using design and design principles and design thinking. So that's it. We're going to be a multi-brand, multi-category company using design to get there. In which way did you or do you have to change your uh, business model or do you have or had to do that at all? Uh, well, I'd say our business model is very similar to what it was when I got here. So probably not much. I mean, today our, our business model uh, financially looks very similar. Uh, if you define a business model as what do you sell and at what gross margin rate for your users? I'll define gross margin in a minute. And then how much do you spend in overhead to support that? I'd say our business model is very similar to where, where it was. We sell things that cost about uh, between you know, 60 and 65% of, of, uh, of, the, of the price that we sell for, which means we have 35 or 40%, 35% is kind of our norm, 35% to invest back in other things like people, like engineering, R&D, marketing. So that's the business model. It's still the business model. Now, I think over time, we will, you will see our business model evolve as we get into more and more software and uh, service-related things. But, but so far, I'd say it hasn't changed much. That was, well, that was exactly why I was asking, because yesterday I, at the airport, when my flight was delayed, that's why it was a travel to come here, okay. um, I read the Harvard Business Manager, um, and it was exactly about digitalization and also the change of business models that many companies who are selling products are now switching to a service company which means hey we are providing our products as a service as a long-term um, product you can buy uh, borrow or whatever yeah. and uh, that was just because or why I made up the question and sure. Maybe do you do you see something ha like that happening in the future? Yeah, you know when I first uh, when I first joined Logitech, I went around and saw all the Silicon Valley um, 
or not all of them. I saw many Silicon Valley venture venture firms, joint venture uh, venture capital firms, and and uh, I got a frequent feedback, which was, you know, hardware is over by itself. It's all about recurring revenue. You know, you, you, you know the, that's the future. And uh, and I and I walked away from my fifth meeting where somebody told me that, thinking, okay, well. Uh, we're a hardware company, though. We just sell hardware. We don't really have anything else. We're going to have to work on that. But, but right now, we need to get our business turned around, so I'm going to focus on hardware. Uh, roll forward six years, we've, we've, we're probably, we probably have uh, 20 times more software engineers than we did when I started. And, our, um, and we still don't have really any significant recurring revenue models, but we've done pretty well. You know, Our stock has gone up 600%. Our profits quadrupled. And and our revenues have gone from declining to growing 15 or 16 percent. So, so how is that possible if these venture capitalists were correct? Well, I believe the venture capitalists were correct. They're just incorrect on the timing. I think over the next you know 10 or 20 years, you'll see more and more recurring revenue models attached to hardware, independent of hardware. You're seeing it now everywhere. It's it's just brewing, and and so we're, we'll be brewing them too, just like everybody else. Okay, so you were. I use brewing because it's a, it's a German podcast. <laughs> yeah. and beer is very popular. So it, it's uh, an international podcast, but oh, it's, uh, sorry, but, but sorry, it's okay. It, it's, like it's, no it's, it's no problem. It's no problem. I think there are some listeners from Germany as well, and right. as I am German, I understand it. I'm so sure. it's at least it's your family is listening. T- totally, yeah. totally fine. <laughs> um, one thing that I was really curious about when you talked about it and mentioned it in the keynote at TNW was you're learning from a lot of startups because you're talking to a ton of them and you had three goals in quotation marks in, in mind, like um, learning from them, hiring them, buying them or partnering with them that are actually four goals, but okay. Yep. Uh, my fault. Uh, <laughs> but um what uh, now I, I lost my my yeah, question a bit to, you want me to talk about that a little bit yeah exactly okay. <laughs> thanks oh, for helping oh, absolutely. out yeah. we're here we're helping each other yeah that's perfect life. so uh yeah yeah you know i i um i spent my whole career at really big companies like um some of your listeners probably work at big companies now and many of them have probably worked at big companies and all the rest probably think well i've probably big companies have the best practices it's the And so all the small ones are trying to learn from the big ones. And things like Harvard Business Manager or Harvard Business Review, they quote all the big companies as the experts, you know. And uh, I I started many years ago uh, concluding that big companies don't do anything very well. Um, The only thing they do well is scale. And the the reason I say that, that might sound either too dramatic or uh, or too, too, uh, too extreme, but I really believe that. Because what happens is, is, as a company gets bigger, I'm going to describe it a little bit, and then I'll come back to it. As a company gets scales, scaling's the sexiest word in, in the world today. You know, like you, everybody wants to scale and become, you know, the next Uber or the next Facebook or the next Google. And scaling is really valuable. I mean, being big, uh, having scale is a super valuable strategic advantage. It might be the only strategic advantage that's really sustainable, if it's sustainable. And the problem with it is. It also it comes with a whole bunch of other things that aren't good, so you end up with more layers of of structure with more hierarchy, and you end up with more politics usually because you know and you get more segregation of duties. So a person instead of like in a startup, you got five people and you those five people are working on something and and you're working on the product and I'm working I'm doing the engineering stuff and he's doing the design stuff and she's doing the 
whatever she's doing. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> running this thing. I mean, we're working for her, as a, of course. So so that little group is skin on skin with the customer all the time, and skin on skin with each other. So there's no there's no sep- separation of uh, of the the team from what you're trying to innovate on, and also from how you're getting it done. So that's the optimal, in my opinion, that's the optimal work group. As you scale, and I just scale everything up, you suddenly have a team of people doing one of our jobs. And that person's now, so that means we got a whole bunch of people that are not skin on skin with the customer, for example, or with how it's getting made. So, so what that does is it creates lots and lots of, uh, of opportunities for misalignment, misunderstanding, slowness. And it also, you get, you know, whereas human beings are human beings, you know, the more people you have, the more it becomes, why did, why did you get to do that? Why didn't I get to do it? Why is your title uh, assistant director and mine's director? Why is, so you end up with politics. And, uh, and so what I saw in my big company experiences, which were, which were with very good companies that did a lot of things really well or for big companies, is that big companies actually, ironically, and the more I meet with small companies, the more I'm con- convinced of this, big companies, ironically, are really all their best practices are attempts to mimic really good small companies. And so once, once you realize that, you realize, holy cow. I don't have anything really to learn from big companies. I have a lot to learn from good small companies, even bad small companies. Because the, the, the unit of work, the unit of innovation in the world is, is a small team. That's always the case. So I've learned so much from, from founders, and I've probably met with over 2,000 now in the last six years. I've learned so much from founders about my job. And, uh, and, it, and it's inspiring to me. And I love talking to founders, including you. You know, you've created your pocket. You're a founder. You know, you've created something here that, that's unique, that you have to keep innovating on, that you have to listen to your customers. I'm sure after they listen to this podcast, they're going to be ready to dump you for good. But it's, uh, I'm kidding. But, but I, love, uh, I love founders, and I, and I love small companies. So, so the problem is, how, what in the world do you do? Because if, if getting big is bad... Surely everybody's goal has to be to grow, right? So you got this problem. On the one hand, you want to grow because there is no other alternative. You either grow or you die. On the other hand, if you grow too much, you get big, and then you die a long, slow death, or you become a big bureaucracy. So how do you how do you reconcile that? I don't know yet, but I'm pretty sure there's an answer. And I'm really, you know, we're really working on it. I think that's the next uh, intriguing uh, challenge we'll be working on over the next you know ten years or maybe more which is how do you grow and feel small? Okay, that's an, that's an interesting point and let's say challenge as well. Um, but many people who are listening right now might think, oh, I don't have time or I don't know where to find them because I'm sitting not in Berlin or any other startup hub. How are you approaching the startups and how are you managing them into your calendar? Well, I, I, try, I do a couple things. So first, I... Uh, I mean, other people in my job probably will think I'm a little crazy, and I might be. But, but one thing I, I do that's not crazy is I go speak. You know, I get you know I get invited like a lot of them to do to speak at startup events like Web Summit or Collision Slush. I, I accept almost everything, any chance I get to speak. In I, I will I will set up an event and uh, invite you. <laughs> okay, well I'm, I'm ready. I mean, I, anything that I could fit in my calendar, I'll do it because I. Because getting getting exposure is, is a starting point, you know, just having people know that that Logitech's really interested in startups. What in the world is Logitech doing here? Why are you speaking to us? I, in fact, I almost always, as I did at your event, as, at the event where you met me, I always say, you know, you don't have much to learn from me. I have a lot to learn from you, 
there might be something you can learn, but let's be honest, it's not very much. But but I love being there because I love to attract attention of the startup so that I can meet more. The second thing is, and this is the part that other people in my job probably don't do as often, uh, and once, you're, once this gets out on the podcast, I'm going to be flooded with opportunities to do this, but I meet with a lot of startups, all kinds of startups. I'll give almost 10 or 15 minutes to anybody because I figure there's something to learn from every all these different situations. And uh, I so I probably have, you know, during the week I'll have sometimes none, but usually between one and three breakfasts every morning early. I start very early, by the way. So if you want to have breakfast with me, it's, it's breakfast starts at six, <laughs> six thirty. But uh, but I try to do that a lot, even on the weekends, because it's a great time, great way to find out. I get two benefits for that. One is I get to meet all these cool startup founders, all these women and men who are doing something interesting. It's new. And the second part that's even more interesting, that's a surprise benefit, is I am really in touch with what's going on. Because startups are on the leading edge of everything. You know, you get to a big company. By the time the big company gets into it, it's usually not really leading edge. But when startups are there, they're out there trying to find something new to do that they can uh, kind of dominate or be the winner in. So I end up having a good feel for a lot of the, a lot of what's really hitting the mainstream probably two or three years, five years later. Interesting approach. And um, waking up that early would go into high performance stuff that I'm or performing and productivity. What I do not want to cover in this interview, but I'm very interested in it because I'm figuring it out for myself at the moment. And waking People don't up. realize we're doing this interview at 5.30 in the morning, so you're already demonstrating. <laughs> I woke up at 5.30, so <laughs> it's not exactly when we could have okay, done it. But, but uh, yeah, interesting interesting to see that um, what I read and listen to and uh, looking forward and trying to implement is really used by other people. <laughs> so that, that's good to know. But... Um, The way you described uh, learning from startups is pretty interesting for me. And the other thing is, as I'm always talking to a lot of founders for my German podcast, as I told you before, I'm doing kind of the same without being in your role. But okay. um, I'm also talking about a lot of about startups. And for me, it's total. That's how this how this uh, podcast was created. That's it was um, it was that I talked to a lot of founders, um, mostly in Germany, but also then the co-founder of Slack or GitHub or whatever. Yeah, really interesting. And then other people were asking me, hey, um, you know all the founders of startups. How, what can we do about it? And that's how this podcast was created. So I okay. was just refer wanted just to refer to it because I was like, I'm 21. I don't have any idea what digitalization means for your business, but there are <laughs> other people who might know. Uh -huh. And... I really love the the mindset because it's all about the mindset to realize oh I'm not the most uh, or not the most wise yeah is it the most wise man wisest whatever wisest yeah, yeah. whatever exactly yeah. Uh, man out there I can learn a lot of uh, yeah. startups or from startups and or did you have the realization from beginning on or was there a time where you were like ah, I know more than them I don't have to talk to them. You know, I, I, I think um, I've always been pretty humble, you know, and, and Logitech's kind of a humble company. That's probably one of the reasons why they were attracted to me and I was attracted to Logitech. Uh, so humility is uh, is kind of uh, something I grew up with, this idea. I know I keep, I, for those of you who are listening, you can't see my leg moving. I'm always shaking. Uh, but but I, I've always been fairly humble, and, and so I never... Uh, dismissed anybody, you know, for something I could learn with them, whether it's, you know, a founder or another CEO or, or a person who works in the fast food restaurant that I'm, I eat in once in a while. You know, there's something to learn from everybody. So 
what I did discover, uh, I would say about really early in my job at Logitech was I knew that big companies were flawed. I didn't realize how, how efficiently I could learn from small startups, whether they were good ones or bad ones. And, uh, it probably, it took me, you know, very little time to realize, wow, there's a lot to learn here. And, uh, which is not to say that I knew what to apply to Logitech. I didn't, especially in the beginning, but I, I knew there was a lot to learn there. And, and I'd worked at, you know, you have to realize that I'm, you can't see me. I look 35, but I'm 55. I'm kidding. I don't look 35. I look 65, but I'm 55. Uh, I'm 55 years old, and I spent my whole career at these really big academy companies where, in theory, I should have learned a lot that, you know, what in the world could a startup have to teach me? And what I discovered was, as I said earlier, you know, the big companies do really important and great things for big companies. But the problem is they're just trying to manage their scale and trying to operate more like the startups that I, I fell in love with studying because they're the, the, the kind of the, the kernel of what the big companies are, mim- are trying to mimic or trying to get back to through processes and scale and things. So, so I feel like, oh, wow, now I'm finally getting to the source of what this, these best practices are all about, small companies. What I think personally, and I have never worked in a big company, to be honest, um, is that a lot of times CEOs or managers are not valuing the opinions of their people underneath enough. And I think that's a huge component of uh, trouble inside the, the company. How do you handle that in Logitech? And what are you doing to approach knowledge scaling, I would call it, uh, inside the company? Well, the first one's easier to answer than the second one. The first one, you know, I think if you, if you think about the language you used, um, the people under me, you know, so I'm the CEO, so I think people tend to think, I'm the CEO, so that means everybody's under me. Um, I don't really see it that way. I sort of think I am a, it's like a, you know, I don't like titles, you know, so just to be clear, I hate titles. <laughs> like assistant director, assistant vice president, senior vice president, executive vice president. I mean, I can go on and on. I just hate titles. I'm the head of Logitech, okay? But but I, I don't really think of myself quite like that. I think of this as like, um, picture you're standing in the, in, in the middle of a field filled with flowers, all kinds of flowers. It's a beautiful field, right? And it's, uh, they're wildflowers, they're cultivated flowers, there's roses, tulips, you name the flower, they're there. I view my, my job as I'm more like a bee, you know, that's kind of flying from flower to flower. And by the way, I'm not the only bee there. There are a whole bunch of other ones, and I would call that my leadership team. And if we do our jobs right, we're, we're staying away from the flowers that are already really healthy and robust and cultivated and growing fast, and, we're, and others need help. You know, they need an interruption. They need, maybe they, they've stalled out. They need to be... Uh, my analogy is falling apart here if I go too much further because it doesn't work. But, but you get the idea. You know, you kind of go instinctively where you think you can add help. And some teams need help and some teams don't. They just need you to get the heck out of the way. And so uh, I really envision that's more like the, the organization that I want to be part of and want to be, if you want to call that running the organization, fine. But I think of it as it's more like, you know, you know the truth is, you know, if you look at a um, – at, the, at a lot of plants, you, know, you can cut off part of the plant. You can cut off the top of the plant. It keeps growing. You know that's the way Logitech should be. You should be able to cut off, you know, me and uh, half my leadership team, and it should just keep on growing because the we've created an, a culture and an environment 
and a few light processes that enable those teams that are really the ones where trying creating things for for users out there to operate on their own. So that's really what I picture. Uh, that's really the the way I picture an organization, and I and uh, and and so because of that, there are a couple things very specifically that I do to try to to uh, get closer to to the to the, the every user in the company, every person in the company. First. Every time you, when you join our company, if you join our company today, we'll make you an offer by the end of this podcast. <laughs> if you join it. our company today, you, uh, uh, within a, a month or two, I will have a meeting with you, either one-on-one or in a small group. And I will ask you, I'll, I'll explain our strategy, what I think our culture is, because you know, you'll decide what our culture is, but what I think we're trying to do with our culture. And then the, at the end of that, I'll say one thing, I'll have one request for you, which is you have to write me a letter. It can have one thing on it, or it can have 20. Um, but it has to be something that you discovered doesn't work, or you think could be better, or it's an idea that you have that you think we ought to be doing. The reason for that is because you have, as a newcomer, you have something that I lost, which is you have the newcomer's advantage. You have total objectivity. You, know, you walk in here and you see everything clear as a bell for the first time. You see the color of this carpet, I no longer notice it. You see the cover, the color of the walls. You think, you look at our strategy. You probably really think about it, and, and a lot of it I've taken as a given. The equivalent I always use in my mind is, you know, if you move into a new apart, a new flat, new apartment, you, uh, you, when you first move in, you notice that, you know, everything. And then after you've been there a while, that that light, that light bulb that was hanging by a wire in the closet or somewhere, after you've decorated the rest of the apartment, you don't even notice it anymore. And, and that's the way everything is. So you have, you have an advantage I don't have. So I ask everybody in the company to write me a letter, and I read every one of them. And some of those things I just change right away. And it's really, it's really fun and interesting. Uh, so that's one. And I could go on. There are more things we're trying to do to try to, try to get uh, everybody in the company engaged, especially the new people who, who need to be pulled in and told it's okay to, to criticize everything. And, and that's one way to get it started. Is that also part of the cookbook we mentioned in the beginning, or is uh, are there other parts, uh, the next steps? Well, that was that cookbook I was describing in the beginning was really about how do you create a design company? How do you and uh, and I and I use the analogy of a cookbook, but it isn't a cookbook. It's it's I know it's I, I know you know I, I, but but I I feel compelled to say it because it's a it's a it's probably a little there's probably a little bit more to it than that. And believe me, the other problem with the cookbook is it suggests that I'm the cook, and there were a lot of cooks in this kitchen. I mean, you know, hundreds. So so I'd say throughout our company, we've got a lot of people cooking up design in terms of uh, the formula for for trying to unlock um, every person's per power and engagement. Uh, I don't know what the cookbook is, but I know that part of it has to be making people feel they can always contribute and criticize what's happening uh, in a good way. And, uh, and yeah, that is part of that cookbook. What you mentioned earlier is that uh, huge corporates or bigger companies and also startups who are scaling up are losing the, I would just as it's a term right now, uh, lose your agile work culture. And uh, it's getting harder and harder not to uh, fall into bur bureaucracy. Uh -huh. And uh, what are you doing to try or trying to be as agile? I will stick to the term. And as in log in Logitech. So yeah, in Logitech. You know, I, I, I you know, first of all, it's an obsession of mine. I have uh, two or three kind of uh, preoccupations that just never seem to leave me. You know. And uh, one of them is this idea of bringing design into everything, which is not what you're, you just asked me. 
And another one, and I've got more, but another one is uh, is this idea of how do you how do you not become a big, thick, fat, hierarchical, bureaucratic company that, by the way, can live for a long time like that, can even be very successful during that period because you have scale, but you're a big, overdone, overprocessed, overbureaucratized. Can I use more overs in one sense? Um, how to avoid that is really, really an obsession of mine. I don't know what the answer is. You know, I know that it starts with a, with awareness. It starts with really uh, admitting that it's a big problem and that we have it. We have it. We have it. It's affecting us right now. I mean, if you walk out this door, you'll find evidence of it. The good news, you won't find so much evidence of it that you'll say, oh, my gosh, these guys are terrible. So we're probably not terrible. But if we don't, if we're not aware of it, we could get terrible. The second thing is, how do you stop it? Well, one thing, the, the best possible thing you can do probably is to say, uh, is to focus on the customer. But that's not enough, you know, because focusing on the customer does solve a lot of this because it, it cuts to the what the what the business is all about. But it's not enough because when you've got a big bureaucracy behind you, you've got something. So I don't have all the answers yet. I've got one secret weapon that I'm working on that is uh, that may take years to to implement. That one day I'll be able to talk about. But since I don't usually dis- disclose things until I'm I'm sure they work, uh, you, I'm not going to talk about this one today. But you can ask me back on the podcast when you're 29, and uh, you could be 29 for a long time, by the way. So that could be a while. But, uh, but anyway, so then I'll come back and tell you that it worked and here's what it is. Or that it failed and I'm, I'm in a startup trying to you know, create a new kind of cookie or something. Okay, so we have an appointment in eight years from now? I'm, I'm, up, I'm up for it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so that's a good one. Um, I think what you've talked about covers a lot of how to start with uh, or how to get perspective on digitalization, what to cover first before... Uh, everything is too overdone and uh, fat and whatever. Uh, <laughs> but um, you, you talked about awareness, and I just wanted to to give perspective or give, let you give perspective about which kind of um, parts of the company could need the first um, acknowledgement for, yeah, we have to change something. Because where where are the biggest mistakes or opportunities to change something well i think i think you know if you look at our company as companies get larger they usually break up into um functions and then if they get large enough or if they're if they have multiple business a portfolio of businesses those businesses become uh, large in themselves and so i think the best place and again i don't have the answer yet but i think the best place to start in this effort to break down the company and make it feel small is in those businesses for the business within a business, not the functions like not sales and marketing and um, manufacturing or procurement, whatever you have, but in the, in the business teams, because business teams should by definition be small. They they should never get over too large and they do, you know, so this is probably the right place to start. But beyond that, I don't have all the answers, but I will by the time you're 29. Okay. So, so I would I would uh, say thank you at that point, and uh, we'll we'll get back to you in in eight years from now. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'm I'll, still 55. I will <laughs> looking 35 still. I'll, I will put it in my calendar. Okay. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time, and it was very interesting to get some insights into your strategies and also your work at Logitech and how you're 
transforming and trying to transform further. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to to get the time here and thank you for attending the podcast interview. Well, it's been, it's been an honor to be here. I'll look forward to seeing you again in eight years. <laughs> And, uh, hopefully before but uh, also in before. eight years yeah, for an other interview yeah all right well thank you thank you very much for staying till the end of the podcast interview with brecken i think this story is unbelievable it's so crazy how calm relaxed but also openly he's talking about everything and he's managing in a way where i was like holy shit this person blew me away in 2000, 2018. I met him during the next web and I really want to thank this event in particular as well. And it was so much fun meeting Bracken over and over again. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please make sure to leave a comment or a review on iTunes or share it on social media with friends who you think might um, learn a lot from this interview because I think there are a lot of golden nuggets in there. Everybody can extract some value for him or herself. And make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Tausch, or Digital Leaders. You can search for both. Uh, make sure to connect with me on Instagram as well, fabian.tausch. And... You can also send me an email, fabian at thevaluelab.co. You will find everything in below, uh, below. You will find an article that is summarizing what Brecken said that you can share as well. Um, you will find it on LinkedIn, on my profile. You will find it um, in the show notes. Uh, I will link it. And I think I might post it on Medium as well. So you will find all the links below. I will be more than happy to, to connect with you and to understand what your guys are up to because I think it's so important to understand what you want to listen to, uh, what you like, what you don't like. And that's why I created a LinkedIn community. Uh, I will link it below as everything. And I would be more than happy to have you guys joining. And I'm very much looking forward to the next episode as well. Let me think who will I publish next because I'm literally thinking about it right now. Let me go for Scott Chacon. Scott Chacon is the co-founder of GitHub. He sold GitHub last year for seven, roughly seven and a half billion. I don't know the exact price, so I'll say roughly or approximately to Microsoft. He was one of the four founders. He wasn't involved anymore as he was or they were selling um, GitHub. So he profited from GitHub, but he became a billionaire overnight somehow and I recorded the interview with him five days after the company was sold to Microsoft so I think it's a very interesting timing even when it's a bit later um, and a year after right now but you can learn a lot from the process how he's approaching customer orientation first and this will be a lot of value for you and your company for all what you do and i'm looking forward to the next interview with scott chacon thank you very much for joining by the way